1901. In Streetsville, seven of the streets are named after the Rutledge family. Frank Rutledge had a lot to live up to. Young Frank made his mark the crooked way, pilfering pennies, burgling banks, and swindling sweethearts. Soon he was a big time big shot, racking up wrongdoings on his rap sheet on both sides of the border. When our hometown boy was finally collared, he pulled one last vanishing act. Would Frank Rutledge find freedom? Or would it be his final downfall? From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential. Episode 5 Odds Against Tomorrow The Notorious Rutledge Gang. Tuesday, June 4th, 1901, City of Toronto. Frank Rutledge was cuffed to Thomas Jones, who was cuffed to Fred Lee Rice. The three names were frequent bywords in the broadsheets on both sides of the border. Together they were a gang of bandits, the newspapers christened the Chicago Three. The men were crammed shoulder to shoulder in back of a police carriage that had just left the Toronto courthouse where they were being prosecuted for robbery and horse thievery. The carriage made its turn onto Gerard Street when the Chicago Three's means of escape literally fell into their laps. An accomplice ran up to the carriage and tossed a gift-wrapped package in through the window. Rutledge tore it open. Inside was a derby hat wrapped around two loaded revolvers. Rutledge and Rice each grabbed a gun and pointed them at their fellow passengers, Constables William Boyd and Walter Stewart. The constables did their duty and lunged at the gun-toting gangsters. As they grappled, Rutledge shouted for Rice to let loose his lead cannon. Two shots erupted in the tiny carriage compartment striking Constable Boyd in the head. He fell over, dead. With his fellow constable lying bloody and still next to him, Constable Stewart surrendered to the armed men. I give up, he said. Get out if you want to. The Chicago Three fled the carriage. They were once again being hunted by the law. This time, it was for murder. Frank Rutledge was the Chicago Three's Canadian connection to mayhem and larceny in the Great White North. Born in Streetsville in 1869, he was the only member of the gang not to hail from the fair state of Illinois. His grandfather was Henry Rutledge, head of one of the most prominent and prosperous families in Streetsville. So prominent and prosperous, in fact, that he has not one, but two streets named after him. Henry Street and Rutledge Street. Several other streets in the village also bear the names of his children, including Joseph Street, named for Joseph Jabez Rutledge, Frank's father. From this prodigious pedigree, Frank Rutledge became the apple that fell far afield of the tree. Despite his privilege, Frank's childhood was a rough one. His mother, Augusta Rutledge, died of consumption when he was eight years old. 
Frank left school at 13 to apprentice at the Toronto Woolen Mills near Barberton. Things soured for both the mill and for Rutledge when the mill went belly up later that year. After a stint in the military, his life took a turn for the criminal six years later when G.H. Falconer's general store in Streetsville was robbed. Rutledge was fingered for the crime, and he was later arrested in Toronto. He was found guilty and was dealt a five-year stint in Kingston Penitentiary. While awaiting transfer to prison from Brampton Jail, Rutledge decided he and prison wouldn't work and play nice together. He attempted an escape by prying a bar loose from his cell and bringing it down over the head of his jail guard, almost killing him. The escape attempt failed, and it brought Rutledge seven more years on his sentence. Prison was a productive time in the formative years of our fledgling felon. He quickly realized that his brand of criminality was best cultivated through collaboration. Rutledge put his lot in with fellow jailbirds Pat Sheeran, Louis Lawrence, and William Black. The four men laid out plans to lie, cheat, and steal once they left prison. Miraculously, Rutledge was pardoned and left prison after serving only four years. Back on the outside, Rutledge and his gang graduated from stealing apples at the county store to burglarizing post offices, banks, and custom houses. Rutledge specialized in safe-cracking, and an enterprising spirit gave him ample opportunities to sharpen his skills on the job. The gang went on an 18-month rampage of robberies across southern Ontario. On one job, Pat Sheeran was shot dead mid-getaway by police. There was indeed honor among these thieves as the gang paused just long enough to throw William Black's overcoat over the body before leaving it lying in the street. Honorable, perhaps, but not bright. The overcoat was used to identify Black as one of the thieves. The loss of Sheeran did not stray the gang from its path of mayhem. Sheeran was replaced by another ex-con, Walter Irwin, for the gang's next job, a knockover of the Hartman and Wilgress Bank in Clarksburg. The felons escaped with the loot, but the law caught up with Irwin in Toronto when he tried to unload some of the stolen cash. One by one, police rounded up the rest of the gang, all except their ringleader, Frank Rutledge. He'd managed to slip through the police dragnet. Rutledge took it on the lamb and said adios to Canada. He headed due south, skipped over the 49th parallel to find greater fortunes amid the rolling peaks of Colorado. But bad habits die hard, even in the centennial state. In the town of Greeley, Rutledge's sticky fingers got him in hot water again when he was pinched for stealing a bicycle. He was sent off for another four-year stint behind bars, this time at Colorado State Penitentiary. Once again, Rutledge demonstrated his ability to win friends and influence people. He fell in with two of Illinois' least favorite sons, a well-connected gangster from Chicago named Thomas Jones 
and a young, up-and-coming undesirable from Champagne named Fred Lee Rice. Together, they formed a trio that would become infamous in Canada as the Chicago Three. By early 1900, all three had been released from Colorado prison. They reunited in America's clanking industrial heart, Chicago. At the turn of the century, the Windy City was already a thriving hub of organized crime. Criminals could work freely by bribing cops, judges, and city officials to look the other way. Jones was known to drop $3,000 on two separate occasions to squelch a pesky robbery charge. Frank Gannon, a longtime Jones associate, was added as a fourth man to the tight-knit band of thieves. The quartet embarked on a criminal career that can only be described as diverse. Their crimes ranged from the cunning to the violent to the downright strange. The bold bandits chose not to lurk in the shadows, but strut around in plain sight. They opened a fake art gallery right on Chicago's gleaming Michigan Avenue. By day, they masqueraded as respectable, well-heeled artists and businessmen. The devilish dandies lived the high life, spending money freely, seducing models, and entertaining Chicago's upper crust. By night, they took a break from cracking champagne bottles to crack safes. In Chicago, money meant influence, and the criminals had both. Their ill-gotten gains bought them protection from the law and bankrolled their freewheeling lifestyle. In a city of big shoulders, theirs were the biggest. Frank Rutledge, Thomas Jones, Fred Lee Rice, and Frank Gannon were on top of the world. In between felonies, Rutledge and Rice made time for romance. Two young women, Myrtle Norrie and Martha Dwyer, answered ads in the Chicago papers for models at the Michigan Avenue studio. Norrie was love-struck by Frank Rutledge, the dashing artist, and Dwyer was smitten by Rice, who presented himself as a traveling businessman. Rutledge and Norrie became sweethearts. He called on her at home, met her parents, and they were soon engaged. For Rutledge, one side of the coin was a life of love and domesticity. The flip side was a life of crime. Their dangerous double life caught up with the gang when Frank Gannon was killed while holding up a bar in the Garfield Park Pavilion. The three remaining members of the gang fled Chicago and took their show on the road. They hatched a plan to rob banks in Rutledge's old stomping ground of Ontario, Canada, then beat it back to the safe shores of Chicago while the heat died down. Rutledge made a map of Ontario with the banks of each town marked on it. With the Canadian crime spree laid out cartographically, the three set out on a grand tour of the province of Opportunity casing banks as they made their way from town to town. In Parkdale, the desperados bound and gagged a beat cop on his nightly rounds and stole his service revolver. 
The newly armed thieves forced their way into the Standard Bank branch, but they failed to crack the safe and had to hightail it out of Toronto. Days later, they reappeared in Aurora, where they had better luck knocking over the J.L. Ross Bank in the local post office on the very same day. On their flight back to Toronto, they stole a horse from the Queen's Hotel in Stouffville. They were racking up an impressive record of crimes in a short amount of time, and the Toronto police took notice. Rutledge was a two-faced Don Juan on both sides of the border, and his romantic ways finally caught up with him. On a tip-off from one of Rutledge's jilted Janes, Toronto police closed in on the gang and found the safe house where they were shacked up with two women. Detective Charles Harrison was assigned to shadow the gang. Luck favored the wicked, and the three desperados slipped out of their safe house under cover of night and boarded a train back to Chicago before Toronto police could make the collar. Harrison, however, was of the persistent kind and kept watch over the safe house. His patience was rewarded. The next day, a cab pulled up to the house. The driver entered the house and returned to load a number of suitcases onto the cab. Minutes later, two young women joined the valises and the cab drove away. Harrison followed the cab south to the Young Street Wharf, where the women in the valises hopped a ferry to Lewiston at the Canada-U.S. border. Harrison watched as the two women brought the valises to the express office and had them sent on. When the women left the office, Harrison approached the clerk and got the Chicago address where the valises were being sent. He then beat it back to Toronto to report in. The manhunt shifted to Chicago. The three fugitives were holed up in a rented safe house on Ashland Boulevard. After a week of laying low, in the middle of the night came a knock on their door. Rice came to the door and demanded to know who it was. It was the landlady. She asked to speak with him face to face. Rice opened the door and Chicago PD detectives busted through throwing Rice across the room. Jones awoke and immediately reached for a 38 on the dresser next to him, only to have it swatted away by quick-thinking Dick. Rutledge had a gun underneath his pillow, but chose not to make a move for it while on the wrong end of a police service revolver. The men were arrested. The unsuspecting sweethearts, Nori and Dwyer, were summoned to the police station for questioning. They were informed that Rutledge, the passionate artist, and his traveling salesman pal Rice were daring safecrackers. Young women, they were told, your lovers are safecrackers and desperate criminals. And with that, the engagements were off. The Canadian government applied for extradition to send its native sons and his criminal colleagues back to experience some Hogtown hospitality. The gang's means and influence in Chicago helped them challenge extradition all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. The case wore on into 1901, and the trio continued to live the high life in Chicago while the lawyers argued. The party ended in April 1901 
after almost a year of legal and political wrangling when the extradition was upheld. The gang's return to Toronto was a proper circus. The three Canadian police officers assigned to bring the gangsters back were hounded around town by a car full of the Chicago Three's female admirers. A detail of seven Chicago cops were placed on the Toronto-bound train to secure the prisoners. As the train made its stops through the suburbs, the Chi-Town Bulls left the train one by one until the train and its criminal cargo were safely out of the Chicago area. The Chicago Three arrived in Toronto court, but they didn't expect to stay for long. The gang and its criminal network of accomplices already had a plan in place to free their felonious friends from the hands of justice. As the police coach left the Toronto courthouse, the shackled criminals joked with their captors that they had an appointment to keep. On this busy June afternoon on Gerrard Street, the gang mounted a daring escape attempt that would leave one of them and a police constable dead. After shooting Constable Boyd in the head, the three fugitives bolted from the carriage, turning only to fire back at Constable Stewart. The constable responded in kind, squeezing off a shot that struck Jones in the arm. The desperate men, still chained together, fought through the crowd in the Toronto street. As the trio clawed their way onto a stopped streetcar, the dead-eyed Stewart fired a second time, ventilating Jones's back. The twice-wounded man lurched backwards, hemorrhaging blood. The other two men pulled their half-dead weight into the front platform of the streetcar with them. Rutledge held his revolver on the driver and ordered him to drive on. The motorman, C.L. Coolmine, refused and tried to grab the revolver from Rutledge. As they grappled, the standoff held long enough for Stewart and another police officer to enter the streetcar and physically subdue the fugitives. The jig was up. Rutledge and Rice were battered and bruised. Jones was bleeding out. Their dramatic escape was over as quickly as it had begun. Days later, Jones died in hospital, not from his gunshot wounds, but from the trauma of being dragged onto the streetcar in the ensuing scuffle. The surviving gang members pled guilty to the two counts of robbery in Aurora and one count of Grand Theft Stallion in Stouffville. It was a conviction that earned them each 21 years behind bars. Now Rutledge was as hard-boiled as they come, but he was staring down a long prison stretch with an open-and-shut murder beef as a chaser. It was enough to rattle him to the core. Even in prison, he and Rice had been known to converse with cocksure confidence. Rutledge now avoided Rice and sulked alone in the corner of his cell. He was in over his head, and he knew it. A plan began to brew in his troubled mind for one last escape. After being sentenced in police court, Rutledge handed his personal effects and jewelry to his lawyer, T.C. Robinette, to pass on to his friends. 
Back at the Toronto jail, as Rutledge was being led to the dining room under armed guard, he broke free from his captors and scrambled up a spiral staircase that linked the jail's three levels. With guards following close behind, Rutledge reached the gallery at the top of the staircase and threw himself headfirst over the railing. For Rutledge, a life of thievery rushed to a close, 30 feet down, as he met the jail's stone floor. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Like what you heard? Click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Matthew Wilkinson. An adaptation of this story by Andrea Kennedy first appeared in the Heritage News. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the city of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.ca and follow us on social media. Until next time, dear listeners, this is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.